Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. How is everyone this morning? Hey, it felt like fall this morning. Man, it felt great. Hey, I wanted to mention a new policy at Vox that is going to be in effect uh, starting right now. It applies to everything that's done today. We have made the decision as the teaching team to no longer talk about college football. So we're just going to set that aside, and hopefully Mike will respect that today when he preaches, that we're just not talking anymore. There's just things more important than college football, and I think... There's kingdom issues we need to be talking about. We don't need to be talking about the University of Michigan. Who cares? It's all going to burn. Probably sooner than later. Um, So when I talk to my friends and I ask them how they're doing, I get the same response over and over and over and over. Maybe you get the exact same response. The response is, how are things going? Uh, Man, it's just crazy. It's just so busy. We all feel that. And uh, I'm about to head into the three busiest weeks of my entire year. And I've already felt that starting to build. I leave on Thursday uh, to go to Connecticut. And and so life's busy. That's the importance of of Sunday. It's important for us to change the rhythm of our life. It's important for us to come here and to say, Lord, I want to hear what you have to say. Not that God can't speak to us during the week, but this is a moment where worship prepares our heart to hear what the word of God has to say. This is a moment where we just kind of stop. And as the scriptures say, be anxious for nothing. It's the practice of sitting and saying, Lord, for this next hour and 15 minutes, I'm going to trust that you're at work and that I need to hear from you and that the spirit is preparing my heart to hear what's going to be said. And that might come through the worship. That might come through Mike's preaching this morning. It might come through the answering of questions. It might come through certainly uh, the Lord's table. Uh, We're going to hear a powerful story of some of our community pastors, how they're still ministering to people after Las Vegas. So the posture that we take this morning is, I want to hear from you, Lord, and I'm expecting that the Holy Spirit's going to give me something. And who knows what vehicle that's going to come through, but that's the exciting thing about Sunday mornings is God wants to communicate with us, and our job is to be open and receptive. Uh, One thing I want to mention before we do Q&A is that we're going to do table fellowships. That's starting back up. You can sign up for our table fellowships. It's a way to meet people in church. Uh, It's a way to foster relationships. So go ahead to our website, um, voxoc.com, and you can sign up for table fellowships. It's right up there. As part of our tradition, we answer questions uh, that you have from sermons. So I preached last week on a concept called cognitive complexity that I think is throughout the entire scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament. Cognitive complexity very quickly is how many interpretations do you have of a person's actions? Second, what are the internal motives that a person's doing something? And then the last one is um, can you notice any contradictory information if you believe this person is bad, can you notice any good things about this person? Put all of that together, it's cognitive complexity. Uh, So we had some questions come up from that. So very first question. I have been practicing cognitive complexity or safe to belong with family members, neighbors, and friends. That's awesome. I am finding that although I am enjoying my personal growth and learning about others' points of view, very few, if any, have ever asked me about my thoughts or feelings on topics. I've even been yelled at by someone assuming my point of view. 
continue. I guess I am wondering what's the point if the only one doing the listening? Advise or <laughs> please. So let me say something about cognitive complexity. The reason we do it is because people are made in God's image and they deserve that dignity. They deserve that respect. Psychologists tell us that the most powerful thing you can do for another person is to acknowledge that person. Uh, M. Scott Peck said the most powerful form of loving a person is listening to that person. So the reason we do cognitive complexity isn't because it opens the door for us to win the argument. We don't do necessarily cognitive complexity because it's going to help me win a debate. We do it because people are made in the image of God and they deserve acknowledgement. People are complex individuals. So we treat them in complex ways, even if we disagree with people. Second, from a communication standpoint, um, there is something called the rule of reciprocation. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at when he says, you often reap what you sow. So from a communication standpoint, if we do treat people in complex ways, I do think eventually they begin to treat us the same way. Now, it's a rule, not a law, so it doesn't always work. But generally speaking, people treat us the way that we treat them. Add to it what I always call the X factor, and that is the Holy Spirit is using your acknowledgement, your respect, your care towards another person, using it in that person's life in ways that you might not ever be able to discern. So one, we do it because people are made complexly in God's image and we show respect. Second, I do think over time, it softens people. Not always, but we do it and the Holy Spirit can use it. Okay, next question. Regarding cognitive complexity, this sounds like a new liberal term to change the way people look at right and wrong. Liberals made pregnancies, marriage, legal immigration, gender, and now the national anthem controversial. Now it sounds like Vox is making absolute truth controversial. So let me say this. I, I don't see it as a liberal term. I, I see it again, my, my answer to the first question. This is how we treat people with dignity. We still say things are right and wrong. So let me give you a test case. From my field, communication theory, the most scrutinized passage of the entire New Testament is the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill. This, books have been written about how Paul handled people who worshipped idols. So as you read Acts, you actually hear his language. Um, the idols turn Paul's stomach. The Greek word actually means it causes him to want to vomit as he looks at these idols. It is a total affront to God. He hates these idols. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what do you think about idols? He would say, sin, it's wrong. Okay, but he doesn't do that on Mars Hill. When he stands up at Mars Hill, it's interesting. He says, men, I notice that you are men of worship. It would have been like, wait, what? what? We would expect Paul to get up and say, men of Athens, idols are sin, period. Time for questions, right? He doesn't... <laughs> He doesn't do that. He says, men of Athens, I notice that you're men of worship. Now, that's cognitive complexity. One, that's the second part, internal motive. Why do you have these idols? Second, I think he's saying, I think it's good that you want to worship. I think your worship is misdirected. But I first want to start by saying, uh, this impulse towards worship, I get that, and I think that's a really good thing. Now, let me tell you where I think it ought to be directed. 
So he tells men of Athens, I view you in complex ways, but I'm still going to say at the end, idol worship is wrong. So it's not, I don't think cognitive complexity brings into question absolute truth. We're not told just to tell people that something is sin. As Paul says, we're called to persuade people. And if we're going to persuade people, then we need to treat them with dignity in complex ways. I hope that makes sense. All right, thank you. Well, unfortunately this morning, though I love Mike's teaching, this is just a bummer of a morning to have Mike preach. Because last night, halfway through a football game, God was good. He was sovereign. Evil was literally being trodden upon by God's righteous messengers, Penn State. It was beautiful. And then, the problem of evil. I was in a fetal position. Oh, stop it! Mike! We have a new rule here. We have a new rule. No football. <laughs> All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, part of our teaching team is the founder of Vox. We love Mike, and uh, Mike is in Ohio. Mike, we finally have the technology pulled out. I have a sermon that is waiting to go. We are not going to the <laughs> sermon. The technology is ready to go. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Airy. All right. And who, who is this Tim character to make rules about what can and cannot be spoken from the Vox stage? Who is that guy? And there is Hannah, Hannah B. Well, good morning, Vox. It is great to be with you. Now, uh, I see that a number of you are bundled up today. I understand it's in the 60s, and, and after the hot streak, it's been, uh, been pretty chilly. Uh, today, though, I want you to know it's 41 degrees out. Uh, Nate and I sat at, at Ohio Stadium for almost eight hours when it was 37. So we have no, I didn't have sympathy for you when I was there. I have less even now for your flannel wearing in 60 degree weather. So I just, I just don't back it. But I am um, thrilled that you're here this morning and thrilled to be able to see you. And I know this is a bit weird, but if there's ever a community that's been built uh, to be able to um, do something like this. It is our church community. So um, if you're willing, let's dive into the text. Uh, I've been sitting a, a little bit on the text, uh, this passage for a while, just because it's so interesting to me in light of things that are going on. If you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 13. And uh, we're going to look at one of Jesus's parables, but this one isn't talked about too much. Um, I, I want, although you'll see, I think why, why it's relevant to us. It's, it's something I've been excited to share, uh, with you guys for a while. And, um, let me just get my computer set up. There we go. So Matthew 13, we'll start in verse 24. Uh, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted sometime later and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? 
And then this is this is so important, this line. Verse 28, an enemy did this, the owner replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go ahead and pull out? Next slide. Oh, uh, <laughs> I didn't see the rest of it. Uh, verse, uh, do you want us to go ahead and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now, there's a, another text here that we'll look at in a second, but then Jesus goes and explains this parable. We want to look at that in verse uh, 36. Verse 36, Jesus now is now interpreting the parable privately, and he says to them, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the fields. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Now, this all this imagery comes from Daniel chapter 7, all right? So we, I wish we had time to kind of go into it. But Jesus is, is recapturing some of Daniel's imagery here for this parable. He says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's a reference to the Messiah. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for people of the kingdom of God. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the accuser, the adversary, the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Uh, the Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Then they, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've looked at these judgment sorts of statements from Jesus before. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So this is this is one of those parables that I think does a lot more um, than the attention we give it, right? It's not one of Jesus's famous ones. It's often in the old, uh, in older translations called the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, this one though is, is will the, the NIV translated the, the wheat and the weeds. Now it's interesting because Matthew 13, there's a whole bunch of agricultural parables that are designed to teach, um, and answer questions the disciples either have had or will have about the kingdom of Jesus and its relationship to the world. Right? There's the, the parable that comes right before this in Matthew's account is something called the parable of the soils, which is about the word of God being sown in different kinds of hearts. And so, so this is totally consistent agricultural imagery with what Jesus is doing other places. The weeds, interestingly enough, we think the weeds he's referring to are something called darnel, which is a degenerate form of wheat that if it's mixed with flour will spoil the flour, but it looks like wheat in the earliest stages. So the point is whatever was sown, whatever the weeds were, you couldn't tell right away that the weeds were in there. It was only once that the wheat grew up that you could tell then that as the weeds grew up beside it, you could tell that now, okay, now we've got an issue. It wasn't immediately uh, noticeable. So, it, and and that's why when the servants say, "Hey, do you want us to pull up this uh, this darnel? Do you want us to pull up the weeds?" the the master says, "No, no, no, no. Now it's too late. the The roots are intertwined together. Um, now, although we can see that we can see there is a distinction between the wheat and the weeds, unfortunately." 
Now uh, it, it's um, it's too intertwined for us to be able to pull out the weeds without damaging the wheat. And that is an absolutely key point. He's doing this for the sake of the wheat, not the sake of the weeds. All right, we'll come back to that in a second. And then, and then he, he talks about um, instead of instead of harvesting the darnell right now, getting the weeds out of there, at the end of the age, we'll harvest twice. We'll harvest first the darnell, we'll clear that out of the way, and then we'll harvest the wheat. And then he goes on and he gives um, he gives a very eschatological uh, explanation of this taken from the book of Daniel. We don't have time to look at all the details of that of his, his interpretation of it. We talked a lot about judgment at Vox before. If you're interested in that series, you can check that out. But but the thing I want wanted to show you is that he identifies the major players. The the good wheat uh, stands for the the sons of the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons and daughters of the evil one. The enemy is the devil. And the one that had been sowing seed is the Son of Man, this Jesus. That you know, this is a reference he uses to describe himself at times. Now, once you get the parable in view, there are a couple of really wrong steps that people take with this parable. So the first wrong step people take in interpreting this thing is that, oh, okay, people have used this in the history of the church to talk about good and bad people in the church or good and bad people in the synagogue. The, 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 this is imagery used in other Jewish parables. And so um, the, the, you know, there, was, there was always this sense that there would be good people and bad people in the church, and the church's job was to separate the good and bad, um, and the wheat from the weeds in the church. And, and the problem, of course, with that interpretation is that the, 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 the field doesn't stand for the church. It doesn't stand for the people of God. The field stands for the world, according to Jesus. And so this is not an excuse to to look around and and in, in within the church and to say okay so who are the who are the who are the righteous weeds and who are the filthy weeds and to do all of that no 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 that has nothing to do with what's going on in the church and the second the second wrong step on this is is there there's been a tendency in the history of interpretation about this to think that Jesus is just saying, okay, well, evil's just going to be here, so you might as well just live with it. Be totally passive about it. It's you know, there's nothing you can do, uh, and and that is not even remotely what Jesus is saying here. Jesus himself lived a life of nonviolent resistance. He was never passive. Uh, Jesus resisted evil. Um, so, and he invites us to imitate him. So, there's utterly no question. Uh, that even though this is this is an explanation for why evil still exists, this is not a call for the church to be passive in the face of it. That's super important to understand. So the the issue with parables is always okay. So what's Jesus addressing? What question or questions is he answering? And in this particular instance, what I think Jesus is doing is Jesus is explaining, and this is super, super important. Jesus is explaining why it is that his kingdom and evil both coexist in the world. Because the the Jewish thought of the day was that when the Messiah came, the first thing the Messiah would do is the Messiah would separate the wheat and the weeds. The Messiah would kick butt and clean house. The Messiah would um, would uh, would do all of the burning and the purging first, 
And, and Jesus never talks about it that way. In fact, his contemporary, John the Baptist, talked about, you know, the Messiah's coming. He's got his axe at the root of the tree, and he's going to take the branches that don't bear fruit and throw them in the fire. And Jesus didn't do that. In fact, I want to show you a couple of, of passages that were used in the first century or, or, or later to kind of describe attitudes that, that when the Messiah came, uh, the Messiah would do the purging first. So go ahead, Gary, fire those up if you would. There should be a couple of slides. Perfect. The Messiah. So this is from the Psalms of Solomon. These are these are apocryphal books. The Messiah is expected to purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners, to destroy the unlawful nations. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence. He will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their heart. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. So the Messiah was expected to come and, and purge Israel. He will not tolerate unrighteousness, even to pause among them. The alien and the foreigner will no longer live near them. There will be no unrighteous among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. So Messiah was to come, he was to purge Israel, kick out the aliens and the foreigners and the Gentiles, and he was to do that right away. Here's another text. For the evil about which you ask me has been sown, but the harvest of it has not yet come. The text goes on to say that reaping must occur and the place where evil has been sown must pass away before the field where good has been sown will come. A grain of evil seed was sown in Adam's heart and it is produced and will produce much ungodliness until the time of threshing comes. Next. Okay, I didn't know if there was any more. <laughs> so I guess not. So, so these are, if, if you got lost in all that, I'm sorry, these are two texts that are extra biblical texts that, um, that illustrate the, the contemporary belief of Jesus that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would purge evil from the kingdom, purge the world from evil, purge, purge, um, for, purge Israel and take the evil out of that. But what Jesus has done instead is that Jesus has told a story about good and evil living together until the end. So the purging isn't at first. The purging comes at the end of the age. And that was different from Jewish expectation. That's why I think Jesus is telling the parable, because they were they expected that the, the separation between the wheat and the weeds would happen at the beginning of the Messiah's ministry. Jesus is saying, no, 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 that actually happens at the end of the age. Until then, though, there will be good in people growing alongside each other in the world. And it's fascinating. One of the things where Jesus gets into trouble uh, is uh, he, whenever he comes up against somebody who wants to do the purging themselves— uh, they get into trouble with Jesus. So when Peter takes, you know, a sword and cuts off the the high priest's aide's ear, um, you know, he gets rebuked by Jesus. Um, when the disciples wanted to call fire down on the Samaritans like Elijah did, he they get rebuked by Jesus. When the church has wanted to 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 harvest and to separate. Uh, the world into two categories, or even the zealots back in Jesus's day, they wanted to take Rome by force. I mean, anybody who's ever wanted to do the separating before Jesus does it always runs into trouble with Jesus. 
because Jesus is over and over and over says that is something that it waits for the end of the age. That is not something the Messiah is going to do now. And it's something that only the Messiah um, has the authority to do. It's not something that human beings were ever meant to do themselves. Harvesting isn't that simple. So the question becomes, if, if, uh, Jesus tells a story about good and evil growing up together, and we're told that that our job isn't to destroy evil. That 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 separating is is going to happen at the end of the age. Then the question becomes: All right, in the midst of Las Vegas, in the midst of national disasters and and natural excuse me, not national disasters, but natural disasters. Uh, in the midst of flooding and and the the craziness in Syria and all of those things, what are God's people to do in response to the evil in the world? And I think this parable is so unique in the sense that it gives us it gives us some tangible footholds to hang on to um, ab- about what what it is that we're doing while we're waiting. So, a couple of thoughts about okay, so what's this mean? Why is this relevant? Because I mean, you think about you know Vegas, and you think about Houston, and you think about you think about all of the the, the great tragedies of our time, and, and the question is always, what's the posture of God's people towards these things? Right? Is it just thoughts and prayers? Is it action? Is it just sharing the gospel? Is it doing social work? I mean, we have these massive conversations about it. So, what does Jesus advocate? Why does he tell them this parable? Well, while the wheat and the weeds are growing together. The, the, the wheat, the people of the kingdom, are called to do several things. First, they're called to wait until the end of the age for the separation that's coming. They, they're called to wait with the assumption of God's goodness. And this is super hard because waiting kind of wars against the idea that God is good. Waiting, assuming, the, 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 assuming God's goodness, that, that actually the reason there's a delay between and 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 Peter even says this says this later in in his epistle when he talks about how you know how come God has delayed his return he says well so that as many people as possible will flood into the kingdom the point that Jesus is making is similar he says listen you have to wait if you're a child of the kingdom you have to wait for evil to be purged from your midst but you wait with two assumptions in view. The first assumption is that God is at present, he is at work, and that he is good. Remember, he allows the wheat and the weeds to grow together because taking the weeds away prematurely would damage the wheat. So it's out of goodness. It's the best interest of the righteous that he does this. The second assumption in waiting is the assumption that there will be judgment. And we've talked about this. Jesus talks about the fact that evil will be purged from the from the earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth that are created. That evil will be purged from creation. That that um, that there will come a time when no more tears will be cried from uh, from from people. I mean, that the, the lion will lie with the lamb, and there will be universal peace on the earth. I mean, there is that time coming. But what gets us there? is the righteous judgment of God. And again, I know we're not comfortable always with judgment talk, but we've spent some time talking about how God's judgment is always good news in the Bible, that that evil never has the last word over you, over me, over creation. And so the invitation is to become a people who wait while evil is afoot and around us, but we wait 
assuming God's presence and goodness, and we wait assuming that there is a judgment. But even the word wait isn't quite correct, because the waiting we're invited into isn't isn't something that's passive. It's something that's incredibly active. It's something that's deeply, deeply um, engaged in the world. So, So we're not called to destroy evil and to separate evil and good, but we are called to resist evil and to promote the good. And so we resist evil the way that Jesus did, right? He, he, we're commanded to return good for evil. We're to love our enemy. We're to pray for those that persecute us. We're to embody nonviolent, self-sacrificial love. We're to refrain from judgment and condemnation. I mean, all of these things are invited by people who live in the field of God's goodness and his righteousness in this world. We're invited to adopt those postures, and those postures aren't just passive waiting. That is, that takes so much work to become the kind of person that sincerely loves your enemies and blesses those that persecute you, right? I mean, that's just not something that comes naturally to us. And so what is the posture of God's people towards evil in the world? Well, we're to wait for it to be finally dealt with, but our waiting isn't passive. We're resisting evil and we're promoting the good, but 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 our activity isn't based on um, on violence. It's not based on the the condemning and separating of people into good and bad. It is based on the life and ministry of Christ. Right? It's based on self sacrificial love. It is based on the refraining from judgment. All the things we just talked about. The key to waiting well is to understanding. Uh, the little parable that Jesus gives between the parable of the weeds and its interpretation. There, there are a couple of little parables that Jesus mentions kind of in the in the middle before he explains the parable of the weeds that I just want to throw up there. So go ahead, put up Matthew 13, 31. These are absolutely critical to understand what Jesus is doing and saying here. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds may come and perch in its branches. Next. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So, I'm sorry, you know, it's it, this is so hard because I can't tell if you're tracking or you're not tracking, you're bored to death or you're great. Um, but but I want you to see the genius of what Jesus has done. He tells a parable about waiting for evil to be dealt with at the, until the end of the age. Then he explains it. But between the parable and his explanation, he gives two parables that talk about the hiddenness and the unimpressiveness of his movement at its beginning. And so when, when God's people are waiting, we're waiting with, with trust in his, his goodness and his judgment, um, and, and they're waiting with uh, the assumption that his judgment is coming, and that's good news, that, that, that that's needed for this great purging of evil from our world, that awesome, and that waiting certainly isn't passive. But the, the thing that makes it so hard to wait and our midst is that the kingdom of God is still hidden. It's not obvious. It's not 
um, all-encompassing. It's not spectacular, right? I mean, and it's so easy for us to want to see the spectacular, the extraordinary, the whatever, that, that, that this idea that the small hidden kingdom of God, the inexorable, never-to-be-stopped movement of Jesus— is something that is going on all around us and is something that cannot fail. It is something that will utterly and absolutely win. It is something that will take over all creation when God, with God's blessing. There's this sense while we wait, it's so easy. Because I mean, think about all the weeds that we see, right? All the weeds that we see are promoted on social media, on news media. I mean, it's nothing about weeds. I mean, or excuse me, nothing but weeds is shown us, right? The world is dark. The world is evil. The world is... It, it, and it's so tempting just to withdraw from the world or just to be passive. But Jesus calls us to engage. And the reason he calls us to engage is because this hidden kingdom is moving. It's moving all around you. It will win. It cannot be defeated. There is great news uh, about what God will do at the end of the age and is doing all around us right now. So when the evil feels like it's winning, when the darkness feels like it's overpowering the light, when it feels like there's nothing for the people of God to do except just wait patiently for heaven, right? That is not the picture Jesus paints. He paints a picture of people who on the one hand can, who have to resist the temptation to try to do the separating and judging early, but on the other hand, have to wait patiently right? Trusting in God's goodness goodness and his judgment and trusting in the fact that there is this small hidden kingdom, like a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough and a little bit like a little seed in a whole huge field, that this will grow, that we are a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And so the posture we take isn't the posture that it's our job to destroy evil and evildoers, but we resist it. We resist it as people assured of God, God's work, God's presence, God's judgment in the world, but, but assured too. That, that the kingdom is at work, even though, you know, we see nothing but its opposition. We see nothing but the darkness. We see nothing but uh, the heaviness of sin and evil in our world. And so, um, and so we gather. We gather as like, you know, on Sunday mornings, we gather as people who, who, um, who need to be reminded that the light is winning, who need to be reminded that that, that God is still good in the waiting and that, that evil will finally come to its end. But in the meantime, we're not to be passive. We're not just to, to, to be people that out of anger try to purge the evil or out of passivity just sit and accept it. We, we do this sort of resistance, right? The, the hashtag, the resistance floats around social media. Well, for us, the resistance looks like the resistance that Jesus engaged in. Right? It's good for evil. And, and, and people, only people who believe the kingdom of God is at work will return will return good for evil done to them. Only people that actually trust that God's moving all around us and that evil doesn't have the final say will be the kinds of people who will dare to love their enemy. Only the people who believe that though the evil seems so spectacularly overwhelming, that there is this other thing happening and it's hidden and it's not impressive and it's never going to be spectacular. Only those kinds of people dare to engage in nonviolent self-sacrificial love. And so I think what Jesus does here is he paints this incredible picture of, of, of where we are. We're not called to leave the world. No, we're to be engaged. But our engagement is not trying to get rid of evil. 
It's something only God will do at the end of the age, but it's something that we that, that we resist. It's something that we show the show the counter to. It's it's a narrative that we write differently, and so what we do here on a weekend matters. Our taking the Eucharist matters. Our our giving with money matters. Our singing with our voices matter. All of that matters. All of that's resistance. All of that isn't just passive acceptance of evil, but it's becoming the kinds of people who resist evil in the best kinds of ways. And so, my brothers and sisters, my hope is that I've made some sort of sense in the last 25 minutes. And if you've, if you've slept, you can wake up now. Um, I just want to leave you with this image before I pray. Speaking of good and evil, light and darkness, all of that, all of that comes into focus right here. If you would, though, I want to uh, I want to pray for us as we close. So go ahead, if you would, close your eyes, um, stretch out your arms if you're in like the third row. <laughs> well, I can see some of you. I can see that there are some incredibly sleepy this morning. Oh, I can see it, and I don't blame you, frankly. If I had this large white orb talking to me for 20 minutes, I'd be sleepy too. But um, let's why don't we pray, and then uh, we'll invite Izzy up. Lord Jesus, we're so very grateful for your mercy, your kindness. We're grateful, God, uh, that what you've done in this image is to give us a picture of our role in the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would so pour out your Holy Spirit that we become those kinds of people, that we trust in your goodness, that we trust you, uh, that you are working, that even though we may not see uh, Lord, you would give us faith. You would increase our faith, uh, not only to know deeply that you are good, but that you are at work, that we might resist evil in the best way possible by imitating you. And so, God, to that end, we pray for the blessing, the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Go ahead, Izzy. That's so good, and it was so nice to hear from Mike this morning, wasn't it? Man, he's so good. He's so good. Um, I just got, my name's Carrie Garcia. You can have a seat for a second. I am one of the pastors here at Vox, and um, I've been, I'm gone all the time. I know, it's stupid, but I'm home now for a while. Um, one of the places I just, um, the last place I was just at was in Vegas uh, in a church called Central Church there, and we had a leadership conference there. It's one of the largest churches in um, Nevada, actually, in the world. They, they serve about 30,000 people on a Sunday morning. Um, so as soon as the thing happened, the whole you know, awful tragedy that happened in Vegas within 24 hours. Their doors were open for 24 hours straight and in fact kept them open continually for the next three days knowing that this large conference we were about to do there. Um, everything went to a halt and they just ministered to the people to open their doors up to anybody that wanted to come, grieve. Um, they had worship going almost straight 24 hours just letting people um, come and grieve. They had therapists on site and counselors and love. In fact, the worship team went into every single hospital bed of every single injured person and brought worship into their room. And lots of them didn't even know Jesus. But when you know when you're so desperate, you don't even care. You're just like, I don't know, sing, do something, make something magical happen. Um, so they were able to go in and minister to that. And as Lori Wilhite, Judd and Lori Wilhite run that church, a dear friend of mine, uh, Lori gets up on stage in front of about 
a thousand women in ministry all from all across the world. And she gets up before this conference starts and she just breaks down. And she said, this has been such a hard three weeks for our city. And um, she goes, you know, we fight an enemy here in Sin City. They don't call it that. They call it Grace City. They, they, you know, they, they have to have their words. Um, and she goes, we fight an enemy that's not seen and, and, and has taken so many people that we love and has marginalized them and has, has destroyed their hearts. But you don't see it. We got to see the enemy at hand and work in our face. Like it was just, and so it was really a hard thing. And she was just breaking down, crying. But she said, here's what I know is that even though it feels like the darkness is overwhelming, we had an opportunity to be light. And you can't be light if you're not in darkness at all. So, you know, I encourage you, um, as what Mike was sharing today, um, the seeds are not, although they're not seen, they're not invisible. And although the yeast has not completely make the, have caused the bread to rise, it is working. And if you are completely surrounded by light and you're in a bubble of light, you will never see what God is doing in the darkness. You will never be the light in the darkness because you will be consumed by your light and just the bubble of light that you're in. And so what we do here at Vox is we share stories of people that are maybe living in darkness and God has shine light, shown light in that. We also share of people that might be a little bit of yeast in the bread to help make it rise, might be the little seed that's under the ground not to show off what they're doing, but to encourage you that the light is still prevalent, that although the dark is big, the light shines bright. And so what I want to do is ask um, my friend Joanna and Jonathan to come over to this lovely stage and um, just share a little bit about how they're being yeast and seeds um, in, in what they're doing. Oh, you have a mic. Okay. Hey. I'll stay over here. Good morning. Morning. Um, even though we were not there, Joanna and I were deeply impacted by the Las Vegas shootings. As we talked together through the week, we both knew we had to do something, uh, but we didn't know quite what. So uh, in both my professional and personal life, I live by the phrase, we only plagiarize from the best. And when I saw what our lovely friends Bruce and Carol Chambers were doing by opening up their home for people who were processing, I'm going to get choked up. Um, we instantly knew that that's what we needed to do. And so on Thursday, and now mind you, I'm an accountant. The October 16th deadline is looming. We just switched a bunch of our IT stuff. I'm working 14 hours a day. But we knew. We were convicted. Um, the Thursday night following the shootings, um, we decided we're going to open up our home on Sunday for whoever wants to come in and process. Um, printed up a bunch of flyers on Friday, and we posted um, on social media that we were going to open up our home. So after work on Friday, we put our dog Monty on a leash and knocked on every door on, the, uh, on our street and invited our neighbors. Most of our neighbors were appreciative that something was being done uh, and that a local neighborhood gathering was a good thing in and of itself. Can you tell yet who's the introvert and who's the extrovert? Um, by Sunday morning, I first need to tell you about our next door neighbor. I've lived in that home for 21 years, and I have to admit that sometimes when I pull in the driveway and I see her out in her yard, I pretend I'm on the phone so I don't have to talk to her. True confession time. Well, by Sunday morning, 
we only had two people RSVP. One was her, one was one, a gentleman. Uh, she rents out rooms. She's an elderly spinster. Actually, she's almost my age, but she, she's elderly. Um, so those were the only two that were coming, and I had decided, you know, I'm going to cancel. This is ridiculous. But then Ronnie preached in his sermon, who do you least want to have dinner with? And I went, dang it. Dang it. Okay, we'll keep doing it. Um, we'll, we'll go ahead um, and, and, and hold the event. Um, and, and one side note on the gentleman, the elderly man that rented a room from our next door neighbor, um, I'd never met him, and he's been there for years, five years. I'd never met him. He lives right next door to me. Um, a nice gentleman. We had a nice chat at the dinner. Um, and a couple weeks later, in fact, it was last week, we saw ambulances and uh, fire department and all that at the next door neighbor's house. Turned out he passed away, natural causes, and that convicted me even more. I would have never met him if we wouldn't have been called to action by, by this tragedy. So we ended up with about a dozen people or so, including one of our dear friends who was a therapist, as we didn't know what to expect in terms of attendees and what they might need to process. It turns out most people knew, uh, most people in this gathering knew somebody uh, there or knew of somebody and of at least four people who had been in Las Vegas at the time of the shooting. We sat around the table and ate and drank and talked and it was good. As people were leaving, they all said they wanted to do this again. So in processing after the event, Jonathan and I said, yeah, we need to do this again. We'll do it quarterly. I'm an accountant. Um, and, you know, we'll do January, April, July, October. And so we'll do this. We'll start with this October. And as, as the days went by and things got crazy busy, I said, no, we're just going to cancel this October. We're not going to do this October. Um, but then a, friend, a high school friend posted on social media a picture of his front door and a nice um, a caption under it, our door is always open, we have food in the fridge, we can put on the coffee, wow. just come in, process face to face whenever you need to. And I thought, dang it! <sighs> so right now there's a, a pot of turkey vegetable soup bubbling in the crock pot. Um, we're going to be making also black bean soup for you misguided vegetarians out there. And uh, <laughs> today from 5 to 8 p.m., we'll be hosting the first of our quarterly gathering of people who most likely have little or nothing in common other than a desire to be part of a community. It's our hope and our prayer that by opening up our home, we can help facilitate that community. And so I'm going to extend an invitation to all of you. We live about 25 minutes north of here on a Sunday. It's not a bad drive. People say, oh, Claremont, that's way too far. But it's not bad, 25 minutes. Uh, some of you coming from South County, I'm sure, drive longer than that. Um, we'll be out in the patio and uh, tearing down after service. So uh, if you want to talk, if you want details, please come find us. Thank you. Isn't that awesome? Man, we can get so overwhelmed by the darkness that it makes us want to freeze. 
We can say to ourselves, how could I possibly make a difference? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, we can say that here. And we get overwhelmed by what's going on. And yet by just saying, I'll put a pot of chili on and I'll open up my doors, something happens and a light is, is struck, a match is lit. And what was seemed so overwhelmingly dark, what is consuming our world, your little match lights up a dark cavern. You cannot be light if you're not in darkness. You cannot be the light if you are not in the darkness. And so don't get overwhelmed by the masses. Be compelled by the one. Be compelled by the one. So the one for them is their neighbors and the people wanting to be in process. Who is your one? Where could you step out and be the one? Where could you light the match? Where could you have a conversation that might be difficult? Where could you give a hug that might be warranted? Where could you give a phone call or a text that might give love today? Where could you be the seed and the yeast that starts, although not seen, is growing and God will win. God does win and God is good but he needs you to partner with him so here today what we want to do as a church is let this be a place of refuge and maybe light for you that might be in personal darkness might be in a place where it's just hard and we want to be yeast and seeds for you we want to be able to let this be a safe place for you and one of the ways that we do that is we even the playing field that all are welcome at God's table and anybody that wants to come and partake of the blood that was shed for you, whether you believe it or not, you can take it. And uh, the body that was bruised for you, whether you believe it or not, it was for you. You can come to this table and you can say, God, I feel dark. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I don't have a place or a voice or a name. I feel overwhelmed and consumed by the life that has been, the cards that have been dealt to me. And yet somehow coming to the table writing a prayer request on a scroll and putting it in, taking of God's body and God's blood that was shed for you can start to give you that little seed of hope just even in your own life so it can start to grow and God can start to work in ways that you never thought possible. It all starts here. It all starts at the cross. It's what evens the playing field. And so I'm going to ask that you, um, as Izzy plays and we have worship, that you just have a time where God can minister to you. If you need prayer, we have community pastors that will be in the back on the side. We also have gluten-free because we're super hip um, in the back corner there for that. Can I just pray for you as we just kind of take in this message? God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, that this place is a church where we um, can talk about things that matter, things that are on our hearts. Lord, that you can challenge us through your scripture, not to um, condemn us, but to convict us to move forward, that you give a place of refuge and love for those that are hurting here in these walls. And Lord, I just ask if you would put it on anyone's heart here that they want to see this place continue to grow, that they would participate in showing your love to others, that they would be a light in the darkness, that they would not lose hope or lose heart. And even in all of that, as part of their worship, God, they would take of communion, focus on what you have done for them. They would be so motivated by what you have done for them that they would go out and do to others what you have done for them. And that is sacrificed your life for us. Also ask God if it's on their heart, God, that they would give financially to help this place grow and um, that we could keep these doors open. That's important. It's important to me. It's important to you. And I hope it's important to all of my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray as we have a time of worship that you would minister to our hearts. Be a light in this darkness, God. 
partner with us as we're your voice and help us just to be the seed and the yeast that grows, may be quiet as we wait for you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim. Do you want to do Oh, I was like, I don't know who's doing it. It's Tim. Hello. It's a tight ship. It's fine. Yes. We're all standing there backstage, and I'm going, who in the world is... That's me. Hey, um, there's a very famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. It was written by a man named Viktor Frankl, who was a psychologist who uh, had to go through the Holocaust. He went through one of the death camps. And he said, people can survive anything, including death camps, if they have one thing, and that's hope. And what was great about Mike's sermon is that even in the darkness, that we have hope, that God is working in ways that sometimes we can't even see, and sometimes we're frustrated that he doesn't work faster. But we have hope that the kingdom of God, even in the midst of Las Vegas, is making a difference in the lives of people, in the lives of nations, in the lives of the entire world. That's what's great about Sunday is you're going to walk out of here and your problems are still there. But now, hopefully, we have hope. And that hope is sufficient for the day. So let me pray for us. Father, we come and we do pray that your kingdom come. We long for it. We long to see injustice be taken care of. We long for suffering to end. But in the meantime, Lord, we are your hands and feet. We are the ones who pass on the love of Jesus. So this morning we hear about the hope that in the darkness you're at work. We tasted hope in the form of the Eucharist, and we sang songs of hope. So let us leave today and open our doors to people who need hope to be not so quick to run and accomplish our agenda today, but look for opportunities to meet people. So Lord, we love you. Thank you that you're a God of faith, hope, and love. We treasure that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.